Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our speaker this evening was ordained a priest in the Dominican Order in 1980. After studies in Washington, D.C., Edinburgh, Scotland, and Rome, Italy, Father John Vidmar taught at Ohio Dominican College in Columbus, Ohio, and at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., where he also served as academic dean for nine years and prior for six years. He has lectured frequently at the Smithsonian Institution on topics such as the history of the popes, a history of religious life, great Christian theologians, and the Inquisition, among others. He also helped to coordinate the first collaborative venture between the Smithsonian Institution and the Vatican Embassy in Washington, D.C. Father Vidmar is currently an associate professor in the history department at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island, where he lectures in Providence College's signature course on Western civilization and on various topics involving ecclesiastical history. He is the author of several books, including his latest 101 Questions and Answers on the Crusades and Inquisition. It's a pleasure to have Father Vidmar with us tonight and to welcome him, welcome him for the first time here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Father Vidmar, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much, and it's nice to be with you. I want to welcome those Clevelanders out there. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, the title of the talk is St. Dominic and the Albigensians. There's an old joke about the Dominicans and the Albigensians about which is the most powerful order in the church, the Jesuits or the Dominicans? Many, maybe many of you have heard this already. The story goes that the priest who was asked suggested that in order to answer that question, we look at why both orders were founded. He says the Dominicans were founded in the 1200s in order to get rid of Albigensians. And the Jesuits were founded in the 1500s in order to get rid of Protestants. And the priest then points out, when is the last time you met an Albigensian? <laughs> that particular question. The fact is, Dominic and Albigensians will be forever linked. They are the reason Dominic's life took an unexpected turn and he began the religious order known as the Order of Preachers, or what is more popularly known as the Dominicans. But Dominic did not want to get rid of Albigensians. He wanted to save them from themselves and from their obvious and self-destructive errors. I want to divide this talk up into three parts. First is who were the Albigensians? Second, who was Dominic? And why was his new order so revolutionary? And finally, maybe a little bit of an addenda on St. Thomas Aquinas 
and why he took St. Dominic's teaching and really gave it theological flesh. Um, and if you want to get into the Inquisition and why we got involved in that, that's maybe another talk. But uh, as a brief prelude, though, I want to introduce Dominic. He was born in, in northern Spain in 1170. We don't know a lot about his early life, except that he came from Calaruega, where he was baptized. And if you want to see a replica of the baptismal font uh, that he was baptized in, I suggest you visit the Church of St. Patrick's in downtown Columbus, Ohio. There in the atrium of the church is an exact reproduction, which is actually still used for baptisms today. Dominic became an Augustinian canon, which was basically a diocesan priest, but living a religious life of community, rules, etc. It became a good model for Dominic's new order with a twist. He seemed to be on a fast track to become a bishop, as he was chosen to go on a diplomatic mission to the Netherlands to negotiate for the hand of a noble woman in marriage. That he was trusted by the Spanish nobility and by his bishop, Diego, shows that his star was on the rise. But things did not go as planned. In order to get to the Netherlands, they needed to go through southern France and a region near Toulouse that was becoming a hotbed of religious ferment. It is here in southern France that Dominic became familiar with a teaching that would forever shape his life and the lives of hundreds of thousands of religious men and women ever since. He ran into the Albigensians. As their name suggests, they were centered in the area around Albi. And Albi-Gens is simply a citizen of Albi near Toulouse and preached a doctrine that physical things, anything physical, was evil. Now, how do you get to what seems to be such a strange doctrine? It's actually quite easy, and the world seems to go through a cycle of reviving this puritanical heresy from time to time. It tries to answer a very basic question. Briefly put, how does evil come into the world? Or how can a good God permit evil to exist? Those are good questions, and ones which have exercised humans ever since they were able to formulate words and ideas. In the Christian world, these questions appeared early with the teaching of the Gnostics, who wanted to affirm the evil of this world and the goodness of another spirit world, to which you would be admitted if you had a special knowledge or a gnosis of God. To do this, though, they needed to do several things. One was to get rid of the Old Testament, where God creates the world, eliminate it from the Christian scriptures. They also needed, secondly, to de-emphasize the physical nature of Christ, especially his birth, his dying on the cross. Thirdly, they needed to write their own gospels to have things come out their way. And we know these today as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, etc., etc. Then there were the Arians and Nestorians who wanted to deny that the physical Christ was God. 
Many of these would become what we today call Muslims. Muhammad, similar to the Gnostics, needed to write his own gospel to have things come out his way, and this is called the Quran. Then there were the Albigensians of the 11 and 1200s. Then there were the Calvinists, and Calvinism is, I am convinced, and someone brought this up before, what does Protestantism have to do with any of this? It is actually a modified form of Albigensianism. The same fear of the physical energizes both. But Protestantism is not our issue here tonight. We are concerned with Albigensians. How popular they were is debated, and the current scholarship indicates that they were a decided minority, but a small minority which could be influential, as they were attracting a certain following among the nobility and especially noble women. They were also getting organized. There were, at one point, four Albigensian bishops, an alternative to the Roman Church. So they were a force, and Dominic felt that they had a message which needed to be addressed. What was their message? That evil in the world was created by an evil, that is, a creating God. It's a simple message, but one with enormous and far-reaching consequences. My dad worked in a factory which made large machines, and he always complained about engineers. And I hope if you are out there, please don't take this personally. But every once in a while, an engineer would design a new part, which was supposed to make the whole machine more efficient. But in fact, it only made the one part more efficient. It was cheaper to produce. It was smaller, whatever. Unbeknownst to our brilliant engineer, other parts needed to be readjusted in order to accommodate this new part. And several other parts needed to be redesigned. The engineer did not foresee that. All he knew was the one part he was redesigning and failed to see that a lot of people would have to redesign lots of other parts. That is how heresy works. One person or a group, be it Arius or Pelagius or Luther, comes up with a single and possibly even a good idea. But they do not see that in accepting and emphasizing that one idea, all sorts of other unforeseen ideas will need to be introduced down the road in order to make the whole thing work. Luther's a good example. He wants more people to read the Bible, a good thing. But in doing so, he does not see that people will read and interpret the Bible differently that he will need an authority to decide what certain passages mean, that he needed to get rid of that authority, and so has spawned thousands of little churches, all of whom read the Bible, but very differently. And that's only one example. The Albigensians, and we can also call them Cathars or Manichaeans, as those are names that they went by or were identified with. They theorized a good God could not create evil. Of course, Christians agree with this, but our solution is different. We believe that evil is the absence of the good, not a positive force. But the Albigensians thought that evil was a positive force, so that their solution 
was to posit the existence of two gods, an evil God who created things, including evil, and a good God who was a forgiving God who saved us from such things. This is called dualism, a belief in two gods or two forces. They further describe these forces as a force of darkness, which creates and animates evil, and a force of light, which creates and animates good. In answering the question of how evil came into the world, it left a lot of other questions behind. One such question would be, what of the good that is in the world? Where did that come from? Is it an illusion, a trap? We might find this to be an extreme form of Plato's philosophy. Plato believed in the one, a perfect God who was other, totally beyond us, a spirit, for lack of a better word. Plato went on to conclude that physical things were not perfect. They were temporary. That is, they died. They were corruptible, lacking in perfections, prone to weakness and selfishness. So the perfect things in Plato's hierarchy were intangible things, numbers, ideas. The idea of tree, for example. The minute that you had a real tree, you had something which was limited. It had to be a fruit tree or an oak or a maple and occupy only a certain amount of ground. It couldn't be all trees to all trees. At a certain age, it grew old and rotted and died. In other words, it was imperfect. But the idea of a tree was forever. It could not be confined to a certain space or even a certain kind of tree. So the Albigensians, in order to be consistent, were headed down the same path as so many heretics before them. They saw the Old Testament, the creating God, as evil and warlike, and the New Testament God to be good and forgiving. They wanted to focus on the Gospel of John, which can talk a lot about the Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Pure Plato. And the Albigensians loved it. But there was a very big, glaring problem with this. John does not stop there. He adds a thunderous line, which reads, and the word was made flesh. Even John, for all his talk about light and the word, finally comes down to earth, so to speak, and tells us about Jesus, the man, God, the man. But they also needed to ignore three other gospels. They needed to ignore Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same writers who were telling us about the good and forgiving God were also telling us that Jesus Christ, the human being, was also God. So the Albigensians needed to get rid of Jesus or downsize him to a prophet. Like Thomas Jefferson, he needed to, we need to snip out all the references to Christ as someone who works miracles, as someone who says things like, before Abraham was, I am. We have to get rid of those if we're going to be 
and the Albigensian. So one thing leads to another in the Albigensian world. If Christ can be downsized, then sacraments need to go. After all, every sacrament has a physical sign attached to it. Water to baptism, bread and wine to Eucharist, oil to confirmation and ordination. What to put in their place? A baptism of the Spirit. The Albigensians called it consolamentum, a laying on of hands, a gesture rather than a physical act like pouring on of water. After all, how can physical things, imperfect things, temporal things, be productive of eternal good? I lived in Scotland for three years, and I heard a Baptist minister in Scotland where I lived in Edinburgh, uh, a rather notorious preacher and a hater of things Catholic. He was called Jack Glass. I remember him uh, watching him once preach on the Eucharist and how ridiculous it was. And he held up a communion wafer and he asked, how can anybody possibly believe that this could become the body and blood of Christ? And he crushed it in his hand and then he stomped on the crumbs once they fell on the floor. Pure Albigensianism. I wanted to shout out, but that's exactly the point. How can anyone possibly believe that the man hanging on the cross could be God himself or that baby in the manger? He hit the nail right on the head. But Jack Glass didn't see it that way, and neither did the Albigensians. Physical things to them were evil, pure, and simple. This also led them to think that physical pleasures were evil. The enjoyment of art, music, dancing. Of course, the one thing they could not abide was the enjoyment of sexual pleasure. They opposed sexual relations and marriage, much like the Puritans opposed bear baiting, as H.L. Mencken once famously pointed out, not because it gave pain to the bear, but because it gave pleasure to the spectator. So marriage was evil. On two counts, it might give the person engaging in sexual uh, activity, some pleasure, first of all. Secondly, and even worse, it might bring new life into the world. So the adherents of Albigensianism were encouraged to be celibate. Now, what's the attraction of this? I think it demanded a serious response, even from lay people, something that the church was neglecting. A serious response in the church at this time was usually pushed off to monasteries and convents. But Albigensians demanded a serious response from everyone. Be all that you can be, that sort of thing. If I'm going to be a soldier, I'm going to be the most extreme thing you can be, a Navy SEAL, a Ranger, or a fighter pilot. Of course, this always leads to a two-tiered system. The real believers, those who go all the way, and the ones who are interested but not fully committed. That's where Augustine came in. When he joined the Manichaeans in the 400s, he became a follower. He was not going to go the entire way. He had doubts about this, and he wanted to hedge his bets. It was a good thing for us that he did. Another attraction was a demand for simplicity of life, poverty. Here again, the church might justly be accused of comfort, or taking the easy road at the time. One ad I saw a few years ago for clerical shirts was from the AGA Toomey Company, 
which read, for the priest who wants the very best. Not exactly what priests should be shopping for. Well, the church was being perceived as soft, as lazy, as comfortable, and some people looked for an alternative. And this is where Dominic comes in. As I said earlier, Dominic literally walked right into this heresy. He sensed that something was wrong with it right from the start, and he begins preaching against it. He famously argued that with one innkeeper through the entire night. His main point was that creation is good because God made it. God looked on what he had done and called it good. But he also realized that one could not simply counter the Albigensians with argument. More was needed. And what was needed was example. If the Albigensian critique of the church that it was not living a simple life of apostolic poverty, had a point, and it did, then it needed to be counteracted by example. So much like St. Francis embraced poverty in order to counter the Valdenses in his part of the world, so Dominic embraced poverty to show to the Albigensians that one not, need not leave the church in order to follow the gospel. So he stopped riding horses, for example, which were a symbol of wealth, and he began to walk barefoot. He also needed to do something practical and quickly. What to do with Albigensian women who were being persuaded to rejoin the church through his preaching? They tended to be of two types, aristocratic women who could afford the luxury of being austere and very poor girls who were forced to depend on the Albigensians for help. In either case, they were usually single and could be full of spiritual energy. So Dominic founded a house for them in Pruy, France, which still exists as a Dominican convent today. These women needed a place where they could be safe and provided for and contribute to the well-being of the house that they lived in, and also live their celibate lives in a community and direct their spiritual energy to a positive end. This he did, founding this convent in 1206, a full 10 years before he founded a similar house for men. We don't know a lot about this house, who was there, for example, how many women were there, but we do know that Dominic gave the house a certain amount of attention and would stop there and preach. The women were also taught to read, if they did not already know how, especially to read the Bible, but were also taught to interpret it in a way which was in conformity with the teaching of the church. Now to the Dominican men. Young men were attracted to Dominic's message and his lifestyle and wished to join him in preaching to the Albigensians or in preaching how the Albigensian message was self-destructive. So Dominic began a small house in Toulouse near the new university there. He was not terribly sure what this group was going to become, except that he wanted them educated and preaching the good news of God's creation. He also insisted that they carry the gospel of Matthew, except that he wanted them educated and preaching the good news. Uh, again, I say he, he didn't know what they were going to become, he wanted them to preach the good news of God's creation. And behind me, there's a statue of St. Dominic up here. He's carrying a book, and it's the Gospel of Matthew, and he's walking. He's on his way. He's an itinerant. He's preaching from place to place, and he's barefoot. 
They, he wanted the Gospel of Matthew because it would counter the Albigensian emphasis on the Gospel of John. Why Matthew? If there is an earthy gospel, it is Matthew's, because it begins right from the get-go, as you would say, with the birth of Christ, with all its human grittiness and drama. Eventually, thinking this group would focus their attention on southern France, he sought the approval of Rome. During this trip, it is thought that the Pope asked Dominic to think outside the box, so to speak. Why limit this group to a small house in Toulouse and another one in nearby Fajot? Why not think big? So Dominic, on his return to Toulouse, stunned the young group by announcing that they would be dispersing in twos, one group going to Paris, one to Bologna, both sites of universities. One hesitant youngster, afraid of his uncertain future, asked for more money for the trip before he would feel safe to leave the confines of Toulouse. This Dominic gave him and then nudged them all out of the nest. Dominic had accepted a previous rule as a guide. The Council of Lateran IV had specified that no new rules for religious orders were to be approved. Everybody and his brother at the time, including Francis, was forming a new group and writing a new rule. The Lateran Council stipulated that only previously approved rules would be allowed. But Dominic knew of one which would suit him just fine. It was called the Rule of St. Augustine, which Augustine wrote for his priests around 400 AD. Augustine had been quite taken with the life of the desert monks and thought that their discipline of common life, of celibacy, frugality, and study would suit his diocesan clergy quite well. So he wrote a rule requiring that his clergy live in community, pray in common, eat in common, but use the house as a center for apostolic active activity, parish work, visiting the sick uh, and imprisoned, preaching to the poor, etc. This led to Dominic's own order, the Augustinian Canons that he had belonged to when he became a priest, but who were still considerably bound by diocesan constraints. So Dominic's new order was approved in 1216, and he took Augustine's rule, but he added the twist that the Pope was asking him to add, mobility. From now on, his new order would not be bound by diocesan constraints, but would have papal approval to travel across diocesan and national boundaries, and preach where needed. This was a revolutionary new concept in religious life. Previously, monks lived in monasteries which were in remote locations and did not leave those monasteries. Or you had the occasion when a monk would be permitted to travel for study or for some meeting of monks, but these were exceptions. Once you joined a particular monastery, be it Benedictine or Cistercian or Carthusian, you pretty much stayed there for the rest of your life. Or if you joined a diocese, you stayed in the diocese, much like you do today, even if you were a canon. No more. Dominic's plan was to craft an order which was mobile, which might establish houses, but whose members could be moved as need arose. Thus we find St. Thomas Aquinas, around the year 1250, the next generation of Dominicans, moving between universities in Paris, Naples, and Bologna, 
It's remarkable to notice how quickly this idea spread. If you go to Krakow today, you can visit the Polish Dominican house, which was founded in 1222, six years after Dominic began his order. Then they founded a house in Dubrovnik in Croatia in 1225. Both of these houses are still active Dominican houses. In Inverness, Scotland, which is still fairly remote and difficult to get to, the Dominicans were there in 1240. It's just amazing. Mobility was not the only innovation, however, that Dominic made to religious life. There were two others. One was democracy. There was a limited democracy in religious houses at the time. Some monasteries could elect their abbot, who was then abbot for life. Dominic wanted democracy not to be an occasional way of running the order, but a regular feature of the entire system. Each priory would elect a prior who had a term of office, three years, and these priors would elect a provincial who had a term of office, four years. And these provincials would get together and elect a master general. You see two things going on here. One is term limits. No longer could a superior be elected for life, although some would try to figure out how to accomplish that with some success, but you would be superior only for a set period of time, at the conclusion of which you could be reelected once or replaced. Ideally, this gave the members quite a lot of say in who their superiors were, especially on a local level. And thus, we have the title, when you become a prior, you become a very reverend. But when you cease to be prior, you go back to being plain old reverend. And it's a certain amount of humility that people always want to die when they're a very reverend, because that will be on their gravestone, rather than just reverend. But anyway, it's a way of Dominic making sure that people don't get too full of themselves. It also made superiors more humble and regularly accountable. Con contrast this with the appointment of a bishop to a diocese. Diocesan priests have no say in this, or very little. They might be consulted. They do not know who it is going to be, and do not know how long he is going to be with them. That does not happen in the Dominican order. The other thing that he introduces besides democracy is going to be centralization. Priories belong to a province, England, say, or the province of Scotland, and provinces shared in the election of a master general. So the provincial from England would come and meet with the provincial of Scotland and Poland and Italy, and they would elect the master general who was eventually situated in Rome. Everything was interconnected, and this was in stark contrast to the very loose affiliation that monasteries such as Benedictine and Cistercian monasteries had with each other. They may have followed the same rule, but they interpreted it differently and were autonomous houses. With Dominic, this changes. Members were now able to be moved within a province from house to house, or sometimes even between provinces. And this led to a pyramid form of government, with superiors having the right of veto over elections of those under them. Provincials could approve or veto elections of priors, Master generals could approve or veto elections of provincials, and that is still true today. It all led to Rome, of course, the peak of the period, a pyramid. 
The Dominican order, incidentally, is the only order in the church whose head is not approved or does not have to be approved by the Pope. The efficiency of this whole system is testified by the fact that it is still in existence today and seems to be working quite well. Now, the next generation after Dominic um, is going to be an interesting group because now where does this go? Once the founder dies in 1221, that's always a crucial moment for a religious order. His message is going to continue on quite vigorously and with incredible energy by the appearance of a friar called Thomas Aquinas. Another privileged child destined for high office in the church. His father wanted him to become a member of Monte Cassino, which was a very prestigious Benedictine monastery, hopefully becoming a, the abbot of Monte Cassino and possibly a cardinal. Uh, this is where the Cassino was the king, they were the kingmakers at the time. Thomas, much against his father's will, chose another route. Instead of pursuing political prestige in the church, he joined this lowly group of beggars. His message included two important themes. The fact that grace builds on nature. And the goodness that uh, the goodness is a quality of God that we share. These two concepts are in direct opposition to the Albigensian doctrine of evil. Thomas says that nature is good because God made it. Human nature, because it has free will, can fail and sin, but it is essentially good. Fallen, yet made in the image of God. And later on, somebody contrasted Luther, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas' vision of, of the way this works with Luther's vision. In Luther's vision, the human being is a pile of dung. He actually uses a more graphic word. And it's thoroughly depraved. And, and grace comes like a snowfall and covers it over completely. You don't even know what's underneath there. Grace has so thoroughly covered it up. For Thomas Aquinas, the human being is a pile of snow. And snow eventually, if left long enough on the, long enough on the ground, is going to get dirty. And what happens is another snowfall, grace, comes and renews what's already there. It's the same stuff that this thing that is made in the image of God is renewed by grace and made whole again. So when we do good, Thomas also thought, we are sharing in God's goodness. We are an extension of his goodness. We bring it into the world. We are God's representatives. When we do something which is beautiful or just or fair or kind, we are bringing God's beauty and kindness and justice into the world. I can't think of a better tribute to St. Dominic than the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. He took Dominic's vision and gave it theological expression. And that's my talk for the evening. And I'll take, I guess I'll take questions or let the MC handle all of that. Great, wonderful. Thank you, Father. We have one from Terence who asks, uh, was St. Thomas Aquinas buried in Toulouse because of his close associations with Dominic and his order? 
That's a good question. Uh, I just visited his tomb for the first time about three years ago, and we ask ourselves that question many times. He could have been buried uh, in any number of places. I think that the brethren in Toulouse were probably the most influential ones at the time, uh, and they were the ones that got his remains. Uh, but I don't know of any other greater reason than uh, for why he was buried there. I'll have to look that up. But, uh, <laughs> Father, um, it, very fascinating, very fascinating talk. And you know this this uh, the struggle between our understanding between the 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 relationship between the body and the spirit is something I think even pervades our current culture today. And I wonder if you have any insights on that areas in which the uh, Albigensian or Manichaean heresy or forms of it uh, seem to crop up in our, in our common understanding today? Well, I think um, that Pope John Paul II's theology of the body is something which will would emphasize the importance of the sacredness of the physical, uh, of the body, of the fact that this, of life, uh, all these things are interconnected. And the minute you begin to say, that the physical is evil, you're really going into uh, a whole world of denying that life is good, uh, that God is good. I mean, it really is a big mess once you, you've decided to answer that question of how does evil come into the world in that particular way. And so I think uh, that's his, his theology of the body, his teaching on that, on that the importance of of marriage, the sacredness of, of marriage. All of these things are so important. Uh, the sacredness of the family uh, is, is so important. It comes out of this teaching, I believe. Great. Uh, we have another question from Charles who asks, how did Dominic interact with the crusade against the Albigensian heretics and also with the crusade leader? What was the dynamic relationship there? But that's another good question, and I don't know the answer uh, to that. Like, what was there? Did they have any kind of personal relationship, or did they have contact with each other? Uh, I think that Dominic saw how violent that the Albigensian Crusade was. It was Northerners uh, coming down, very impatient with the diversity of uh, religious views in the South, uh, also seeking to really use religion as a way of kind of grabbing some land and titles. Uh, and Dominic thought that they're, you know, they're using this religion uh, controversy as a, uh, a tool to make political gains. And that's why preaching was going to be a nonviolent form of uh, persuasion. Um, and I think even in, when we get into the Inquisition, you're going to find that Dominicans are going to use the Inquisition not so much as a judicial process to, to try people and uh, prosecute them. It's more as an opportunity to preach to them. So when they are brought forward to this tribunal of three Dominicans, they will talk about why it is important uh, to adhere to the teaching of the church and that why this is all wrong about Albigensianism. So is those are really more preaching opportunities than they were uh, trials, even in, in the strict sense of the word. Hmm. Father, uh, one of our uh, one of the anonymous viewer actually asked a very interesting question, and um, I don't know how much you know about the modern some modern uh, strains in Protestant ideas of baptism in the Spirit, um, but uh, the the question was: Does the Albigensian idea of baptism in the Spirit any? way relate to the modern version as we as we hear it today 
among the Protestants? Uh, I, I think to an extent it does uh, because it's looked on in some cases as being more important than the baptism by water. Uh, in some Protestant churches also, you don't hear them talking about being baptized. You, talk, you hear them talking about being converted. You know, has Jesus Christ become your personal Lord and Savior? Well, baptism is really de-emphasized in these churches, and I think that's a um, definitely something which they inherited from the Albigensians. It's a it's cleaner, uh, it's more of a spirit uh, kind of filled uh, thing, and it's ignoring the spirit that takes place also in this uh, the use of water. The fact that Christ gets baptized by water is very very important. Uh, that he sees this as an important thing to do. Um, so I, I do find that to be interesting. I think if it's used as a, a supplement to baptism by water, then it's fine. But if it's an alternative, a replacement, then you're getting into uh, pretty stormy waters, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Great. Father, uh, we, uh, we also have a question. Somebody wants to know if there, uh, when was the official end to the Albigensian heresy? The official end? The end, yes. When was it uh, done away with? I don't think it was ever officially brought to an end. I think the high point of the Albigensian heresy was in the 1200s, and I think in the middle of the 1200s. So a period um, maybe roughly from 1245 to 1255, you're going to find the most incidents of Albigensian heresy. By the time you get to 1300 and maybe 1320, you're going to find the number of trials, for example, for heresy are going to be almost reduced to nothing. Uh, and the, it's a combination of three things. One would be the Albigensian Crusade, which was a violent getting rid of uh, Albigensians. Um, secondly was the preaching of Dominic. And thirdly, it was the, the trials in the Inquisition for heresy. Uh, I think the combination of those three really brought it to uh, an end. And it almost had a natural ending. People, I think, began to get tired of the, the message and realize that there was something you know, fundamentally wrong. It's like the ending of donatism in Augustine's North Africa. People got tired of it, I think. And uh, that's kind of my hope for the, the Near East and the Mideast today, is that people are simply going to be fed up with the violence and say, Something is wrong with this, and we have to stop. Uh, so, Father, it takes long time to know. Yeah. exhausted by this. Yeah. The, um, Father, the, another question coming in um, regarding uh, uh, the Dominicans' involvement in the trial of St. Joan of Arc. Um, is there, was there some involvement by the Dominicans in that? Well, the Dominicans actually protested. They were not part of that trial, as far as I know. Um, and when the trial was finished and the verdict was read and she was executed, they actually protested to Rome. And the Dominicans were the ones who were responsible for being, her being rehabilitated and retried, uh, saying that the whole process was really, that was truly a kangaroo court, if you want. Uh, they were not interested in finding what Joan of Arc was really all about. It was her English enemies who decided this is going to be a very convenient way of getting rid of her. And the Dominicans were upset by this and said that this is uh, wrong. It's, the Inquisition is interesting in that it has a lot of safety 
uh, valves. You know, the fact that you have three people on a tribunal is is something instead of one person being kind of a dictator. Um, that the three are going to be, and you have all kinds of reports going to Rome from one uh, talking about the other two, you know, people on the tribunal saying they're too strict, they're too lax. They're, so you do get these uh, kind of checks and balances in the Inquisition system. Great. Uh, we have uh, several questions. Uh, several people want to know the same question. When uh, did the Third Order Dominicans begin? Was that founded by Dominic himself? The Third Order, I, that's going to begin when he realizes he's attracting people who are not educated, for one thing. Uh, they can't read. Uh, they're farm laborers for the most part. Uh, but they want to be part of this Dominican. Uh, they want to be, they're going to be celibate. They want to live this uh, cycle of the prayer life that we have. And Dominic thinks, well, this is probably a good idea that they might be able to be incorporated into the order. And so uh, they're going to be used really as manual labor, uh, as if, like a labor saving device and a money saving device. And it frees up uh, the preachers, so that they don't have to take care of these uh, manual tasks uh, at hand. And so consequently, you're going to have, uh, within the order, you're going to have the third order or the, uh, the brothers um, who are not going to be um, ordained. And then this will be extended to lay people too. And I'm not sure exactly when that, uh, that process begins of including lay people in uh, I think probably at the same time it happens in the Franciscan order, that there's an idea that, that lay people can also become part of this in some kind of a limited way, uh, that it would be a good thing for them to uh, be part of it. Great. Um, we have another question, uh, a really good one. Uh, how can St. Dominic's vision of combating heresy uh, apply to us today? What can we learn from his vision? I think uh, his idea of good preaching is, is a very good uh, start. Uh, we need good preaching. Uh, we need better preaching uh, and we need consistent preaching. Um, I think that's going to, we need preachers who are also going to be able to identify with the people that they're preaching to. Uh, my teachers were always very interesting in the, that, the sense that they would always stop you and say, who are you talking to? Are you talking to me? Then talk to me. And, and then it began to, and I've often thought that when I, sometimes when I hear people preach, I'm thinking they're not really talking to the people that are out there in front of them. Um, and so we need that very much. I think we also need an example. Uh, we need people who are going to live the life uh, and really buy into it all the way and, uh, and say, this is, I'm going to commit my life to this life of preaching, to a life of poverty, to a life of co the common life. Uh, and and you're going to find that people are happy when they do that. Uh, I find that if you look at the Nashville Dominican Sisters, for example, and the, the sisters in Ann Arbor, you know, they supposedly are limited. They were a habit. They are the happiest people in the world. They are committed, and they have something to be committed about. Uh, I think that's really an important thing. We have something to offer. May God bless you all. Thank you very much, John. We'll conclude in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you all for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.